Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 267. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a big girl of a show today, a big huge, she's a beast of a show the sofa today. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Covering the Sofa by Skeet, it's that beginning of the month again, so we've got some art that goes on the front of the cover. Then we've got some news, two sets of important news, very exciting news coming up. Then we get into the main show. First off is a fact article looking back at genre history by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Then we have just one of one of the best stories I've read for a long, long time. The Colour Last Used by Nature by Ted Kuzmatka. And like I said, just cracking there. It's narrated by Nicholas Cam, who just, you know what I mean, just a, a stunning narration. And I got them both together afterwards. We've got a little interview with Ted and Nick, you were talking about this story as well. So that's, that's just, just like say, two great people that had a blast talking to them. Then we have a little promo right at the end. Jeff Lane has got a new audio dramatization out called Crush Depth. So do listen out for that. That is today's show. That will take you some time to get through. <laughs> First up then, Skeet with a bit of art called Exterminator. Skeet, sir. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host and art director, Skeet Science. This week, we are grateful to share with our audience the sci-fi artist John Rubrish and his featured art entitled The Exterminators. In this illustration, we hold our breath as two spacefarers discover a large deposit of eggs from an unseen creature emerging out of the rafters above. Will they defend against their lurking guest or end up as tasty treats for the horde of hatching creatures to come? I can tell John is having some fun with this piece. Honestly, I don't think the spacefarers stand a chance. But either way, it's great storytelling uh, with oodles of detail to get lost in. John writes, This is something I created for a couple of co-worker friends who wanted to be depicted in one of my science fiction paintings. I thought it'd be fun to show them attempting to rid a space station of an alien creature and her eggs. But as you can see from the painting, the creature has other plans. John Rubesh has been uh, interested in art his entire life, but considers himself an aspiring artist who's just getting started. He says, I'm learning as much as I can from other artists and pushing myself to improve with each new painting. 
I purchased my Wacom tablet about two years ago now, and I scribble on it every chance I get. As a married 45-year-old father with three grown children, he works full-time building graphics for newscast at a local NBC affiliate and also uh, directs a few of the newscasts now and then again as well. He admits, my job at the TV station introduced me to Photoshop, and it was then that I realized its potential for creating works of art. Prior to that, I have been dabbling with acrylic and watercolor, but the freedom that digital painting brought with it uh, had me dropping my paintbrush for stylus pen to work 100% digital from that point on. John's favorite subjects to paint are science fiction and fantasy. I love depicting dragons, spaceships, and fairies, he says, but the challenge, I believe, is to make it fresh and interesting with each new work. Much of the art I've painted so far are depictions of stories I've created. In fact, one of these stories, titled The Wizards of Pangea, has just recently come available as an iBook. His art has been shown on the ImagineFX magazine CD and has also created artwork for Twilight Imperium for Fantasy Flight Games. John says he, he'd also like to create illustration for card games, book covers, and magazines, and get the chance to create concept art for video games and movies one day. Well, John, keep on creating beautiful work like we've seen today, and I'm sure your wish will be granted. If you'd like to see more of this artist's work, please visit him at johnrubesh.deviantart.com, and that's spelled J-O-N-H-R-U-B-E-S-C-H dot deviantart.com. Or you can find him at johnrubesh.wix.com slash art. Or you can find him at his blog at johnrubeshart.blogspot.com. And as always, I'd like to thank John Rubesh for contributing to the Starship Sofa and hope to see more of him on Covering the Sofa. Back to you, Tony Tone. There you go. Do have a look at the artwork. Wow. Man, Skeet. Skeet's just pulling these bits of artwork from somewhere. I've no idea, but Skeet, thank you so much. So, we get into two bits of fantastic news. The first one is, yes, I'm pushing, Spider Robinson. We have now details, everything's up online. If you want to go and check out How to Write Science Fiction with Spider Robinson, that event will be the 26th of January. 2013 and it's at 8pm which is uh, and I had to clear that with Mrs. Starship so far because it'll go through until probably about half nine ten o'clock maybe a bit longer if you know just spiders answering questions so I had to make sure I was okay with Mrs. Starship so far there just like Mel, Melanie can, can we um, you know you'll not be able to watch because this computer and everything here is in this kind of room which is leading on to the where the TV is on you know and it's a Saturday night as well so I had to get that one ticked off so it's exactly like, you know, how to write with Joe Haldeman. Spider's going to talk about, you know, how to actually write science fiction. Just give a little insights into how to write science fiction and some insights into his life and, you know, kind of what he gets up to and, you know, he's passed and everything like that. So if you, you know, if you were kind of keen to come along to the Joe Haldeman one, actually, anyone that came along to the Joe Haldeman one, I sent out an email where you get discount on the ticket as well. Ticket's normal price is £20, the same as the Joe Haldeman one. So that is in January the 26th. Gives you a little bit of time to kind of, you know, think about it. But I hope you do. That would be fantastic. 
The next bit of it, which I'm really excited about, the next bit of news is our very own Adam from the Cheap Skates Fact article, Adam Piot. Adam is now the assistant editor at Starship Sova. Yes, Adam's going out there and, you know, with hammers, chisels and knives, prying the stories from writers. And wow, he's doing a cracking job. Because there's certain writers that I've, like, tried a couple of times and, oh, you know, and I'm not going to name any, but straight away within his first week, he's got one of the major ones that I never could get a hold of. So... Adam, I'm so excited, like I say, Adam's coming on there and he's going to be getting some stories and, you know, pairing them with narrations as well. So if you need any, you know, if you want to even speak to Adam, you know, we'll, we'll hook you up there if you've got a story or you know of a story. Because Starship's over, it only goes for stories that's been kind of printed in, kind of, you know, the kind of the top magazines that sort of speak, you know, the Asimovs and the Analogs and everything like that. So we've got Adam on the case, but if you, if you know of a story... Drop a line and we'll 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 put Adam onto it. So Adam, welcome aboard. Pipe in. <laughs> That's the bloody whistle I can do with this time of day. Adam, welcome aboard. Honestly, it's lovely to have you on board. So let's kick off today's show. And like I say, it's a fine show. And how better the leader with Amy H. Sturgis. Looking back at genre history, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today I'd like to talk about a mid-19th century writer whose work helped pave the way for modern science fiction, and one work of his in particular. I'd like to talk about Fitzjames O'Brien. He was born in Ireland in 1828, and as a young man in 1852, he immigrated to the United States. He became a popular fixture among a bohemian circle of friends in New York City, and he successfully made his living by his pen. He wrote a variety of stories and articles. He published in The Home Journal, The New York Times, The American Whig Review, and Harper's Magazine, where he published more than 60 articles. That's 6060. Yeah, prolific guy, right? He also published poems as well. He also published in the New York Saturday Press, Putnam's Magazine, Vanity Fair, and the Atlantic Monthly. Now, he wrote a variety of things, but some of his short stories can now be understood to be classic works of gothic horror and science fiction. Unfortunately, his career was cut short. In 1862, he died mortally wounded during the U.S. Civil War while serving with the Union Army. His first collection of poems and stories came out in 1881, almost 20 years after his death. Now let's look at some of his stories and why they count as genre works. The Bohemian, which was published in 1855, is an early tale of mesmerism, in which a man's love for gold leads him, quite fatally, to have his girlfriend mesmerized so she'll tell him the whereabouts of treasure. Mesmerism was quite debated and researched by doctors and scientists at the time, and you may recall that other early science fiction authors, such as Edgar Allan Poe, were quite interested in it as well. His story, The Lost Room, in 1858, is about a strange house whose 
quote, corridors and passages like mathematical lines seemed capable of indefinite expansion. I think of this as a predecessor to H.P. Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House, among other works. This has the narrator's room plucked, it seems, to another dimension, where the narrator then encounters this different world. His 1859 story, The Wondersmith, is an early predecessor of what would later become robot rebellion stories. In this case, the story is about toy soldiers, and they are transformed into living automatons who eventually turn against their creators and rebel. One of his most unforgettable stories is What Was It? A Mystery from 1859. This tells of an encounter with an invisible creature whose nature remains a mystery. Eventually, in order to solve the mystery, people chloroform the creature, and while it is unconscious, they make a plaster cast of it, and the plaster cast reveals it as a hideous, small, humanoid figure. It's the inexplicable alien. We are never given a full understanding of where it came from or what it is. And the uncertainty adds to the horror, but also to the realism of the piece. His story, How I Overcame My Gravity, which was published two years after his death, includes a stunning description of suborbital flight achieved by the means of gyroscopic stabilization. It would be fascinating to know where Fitzjames O'Brien's career would have taken him had he lived longer. Perhaps O'Brien's greatest achievement was the 1858 story, The Diamond Lens. Now, to put it in its context, I need to go back. In 1827, the Quarterly Journal of Science and the Franklin Journal reported that a diamond lens had been used for microscopic investigations. O'Brien himself noted that he used a scientific consultant on the piece. He wrote, In the composition of the diamond lens, I derived considerable aid from Dr. J.D. Whelpley of the city, himself an accomplished writer and practical microscopist. To him, I am indebted for some valuable suggestions connected with the scientific mechanism of the plot, and he was a witness to the gradual development of the story under my hands. The story is the first published, or at least the first published and surviving, tale using the modern microscope as its focus. I've talked in several previous segments about the debt that science fiction owes to the Gothic, and this story is one of those perfect examples of how the Gothic flowed into science fiction, because the Gothic's fingertips is all over this story. You start out with a mad scientist, or perhaps more appropriately, a mad guy who's also a scientist, who becomes fixated very early on microscopes. And rather than living in the world around him, he wants to live in this ever smaller, ever more detailed world. He ends up attending a seance, hoping to talk to, and apparently talking to, previous scientists about how he can make the microscope more efficient and more powerful. 
Of course, we're left to wonder whether this actually happened or whether this is all part of his diseased imagination. In the end, he steals and he murders in order to get his hands on a rare diamond, which he then uses for the purpose of a lens in his microscope. And this diamond lens opens up an entirely new world to his study. In a single drop of water, the narrator discovers an entire universe, and his descriptions are remarkable. Let me give you a quick example. It was, however, no brilliant void into which I looked. On every side I beheld beautiful inorganic forms of unknown texture and colored with the most enchanting hues. These forms presented the appearance of what might be called, for want of a more specific definition, foliated clouds of the highest rarity. That is, they undulated and broke into vegetable formations and were tinged with splendors compared with which the gilding of our autumn woodlands is as dross compared with gold. Far away into the illimitable distance stretched long avenues of these gaseous forests, dimly transparent and painted with prismatic hues of unimaginable brilliancy. The pendant branches waved along the fluid glades until every vista seemed to break through half-lucent ranks of many-colored drooping silken pennons. What seemed to be either fruits or flowers, pied with a thousand hues, lustrous and ever-varying, bubbled from the crowns of this fairy foliage. No hills, no lakes, no rivers, no forms, animate or inanimate, were to be seen, save those vast auroral copses that floated serenely in the luminous stillness, with leaves and fruits and flowers gleaming with unknown fires, unrealizable by mere imagination. Quite spectacular, isn't it? But soon, in one of these glades, in one of these prismatic forests, comes a figure, a young woman, and he names her Animula, and he falls in love with her. What's particularly fascinating and disturbing about this is that they are not meeting as equals in fact, he's sort of in the position of a god. He can turn on and off the light and change her entire universe, and he does, and he watches her reactions. As much as cosmic fiction opened new vistas, humanity was small on a huge and impersonal stage, here again I'm thinking of H.P. Lovecraft, the microscopic world offered a similar seductive idea and a new frame of reference for humanity. And O'Brien realized this very well, because when the scientist pulls back and looks at his own world, it really suffers in comparison to the microscopic world. For one thing, he has tremendous power in the microscopic world, and he doesn't in the regular world. And for another, the diamond lens has given him this view into something so beautiful that everything around him in our universe seems very poor by comparison. So he says the most beautiful and graceful woman in the world becomes crude and gross and discordant, even disgusting, compared to the self in the drop of water, Animula. So he pines away for her, 
and it becomes too painful for him to watch her in her drop of water in the slide, and so he stays away for some time. And when he comes back, he realizes that she's dying because, due to his own self-absorption, he has left her, and the water in the slide has dried up and is taking her universe and her away from him. O'Brien's to be commended here because, while opening up new doors of imagination through his story and the idea of the microscopic universe. There's also a clear focus on the troubled psychology of the lone genius because he does kill and steal, and in the end, his own self-absorption even destroys the focus of his own obsession. And he plays God not only with the microscopic woman in the slide, but he plays God with the people around him because he steals and kills to feed his desire for more knowledge. The Diamond Lens would become one of those stories that would gain a second life after Hugo Gernsback established Amazing Stories and the entire trend of the science fiction magazine in the early 20th century. So the Diamond Lens was reprinted in 1926 in Amazing Stories with illustrations and such, and thus gained an entirely new audience. And what's really remarkable about this is that it seemed as cutting edge in 26 as it did in 1858 when it was first published. You can find the text of the Diamond Lens and other works by Fitz James O'Brien at Project Gutenberg online, and you can also find an unabridged reading of the Diamond Lens at LibriVox.org. Hats off to Fitz James O'Brien, one of the early pioneers of science fiction, and one of the very earliest pioneers of the kind of science fiction that turned our gaze inward and to the very small, as opposed to outward and to the very vast. I look forward to joining you soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. Amy, you've been there since war. Amy, you've been here a long time and it's lovely to still have you on board. Honestly, thank you so much. So we get into the main fiction and it's the colour least used by nature by Ted Kuzmatka. And like I said, we played a couple of stories by Ted and kind enough to have you know Ted give her one of the stories to, to go in the book, one of our collections as well. And I've just liked Ted's work for a long, long time. And just this story came along and Ted, you know, said, hey, Tony, I, I quite like this myself, you know, this story. And when I read it and when I kind of got Nick Cam on to, to do the narration, it's just fantastic. It first came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, the January-February issue 2012, edited by Gordon Van Gelder. Then we've just heard as well, or Ted's just told us, it's coming in the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 7, which is edited by Jonathan Strand. And there's quite a, you know, quite a good few in there. I've got my eye on as well. Actually, there's a couple we've played as well already. So, you know, just to get this kind of story, I'm chuffed a bit. Ted started writing or his first short story sold in 2005, The God Engine. And like I say, this one was the last one, 2012. In there, he's had In Fall, 2010. Bitter Seed, 2006. Did you notice I'm just bouncing backwards and forwards? The Prophet of Flaws, 2007. N-Words, The Art of Alchemy, Diving Life and The Ascendant and Blood Dober with Micah Poor. 
Like you say, and Ted's got some books out there as well now. And have a listen to the interview at the end of it as well, because I'll just we'll run straight into the interview. Ted's just what one exciting writer. I'll give you a little bio on Ted. Ted's work has been reprinted in eight of the year's best anthologies, translated into a dozen languages and performed on stage in India and New York. He's been nominated for both Nebula Award and Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award and is the co-winner of the 2010 Asimov Reader's Choice Award. He is a video game writer at Valve and lives with his family in the Pacific Northwest, not far from the sea. And there's a great list. Ever wondered what Ted did before he became a writer? And Ted's got this list on his page, man. College tutor. He's been a laboratory assistant, an endangered species researcher. <laughs> oh, man. A truck stop dishwasher, a painter. I like this well. In brackets, thick drywall, not canvas. A blast furnace labourer. A waiter in Applebee's. A steel mill chem tech. A research volunteer at the Field Museum. Homeless but never jobless. A stage actor in New York City. Several of the bubs simultaneously. A zookeeper, an altar boy. Sucker punched, an elaborate research assistant. Do you know what you write as well, man? You go through some mill to try and make a living. Ted, honestly, it's lovely to have you back on, you know, the kind of show and like they say, this story, everyone just, and like I say, Nick does this narration perfect. And I think the perfect narration is when you forget Nick's there doing the perfect narration and you just, you're transported with this story. And actually, when Ted said he listened to it, you know, because if you've wrote the story for years, you know, and you you do it, you know your story, but then... I sent over, just so we could have like a little chat, you know, after this story, I sent over the recording to Ted off Nick and just Ted was just outstanding by, you know what I mean? He just said it was just stunning. He, he listened to it. And normally, like Ted says, you'd, you'd kind of just listen to five minutes, if that, and say, all right, that's all right. But Nick comes up with this fantastic narration. Nick's just a, a superstar, you know what I mean, with, with his narrations. Just, and he's, I'm throwing all sorts at him as well there. So do look out for some more. Nick, what a star. Like, big hugs to you, Squire. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Collar Least Used by Nature by Ted Kosmatka. The trade winds carried the sound of hooves. Inside his small boat works, Kua Ai put down his awl and looked to the window. So, it's time, he said. Kua Ai didn't mind that the administrator's men had come finally to end him. He had since that morning known himself to be a story in need of an end, and so only smiled softly when the men pulled up their reins in a cloud of dirt and climbed wearily down from their horses. They hesitated then, lingering, checking their weapons, five clay men balanced evenly between the hard ride behind them and the hard thing left for them to do. The shortest of them turned grim-faced, and Kua Ai shook his head sadly in recognition. Though the other men carried revolvers, this one bore twin knives in his belt. Kua Ai had known they would come. Of course, these five men, or five others. He'd known since he woke that morning and found his son's bunk empty. It was natural that it should happen. There should be no other response. Today, his boat works would burn. He'd closed up early out of respect for the safety of any customers who might come wandering in. The administrator's men would abide no living witnesses, and Kua Ai saw no reason to risk deepening the tragedy. 
He'd waited until the sun was high before flipping the sign and taking off his smock for the last time. He had then put each of his tools carefully in its place, the long saw, the hatchet, the binder, the adze, each on its assigned shelf along the back of the wall of his workspace. The awl, the chisel, the mallet, tools whose only place was amid the clutter of whatever project he was working on, these he placed carefully on his workbench in a neat line. He allowed his fingers to caress the awl, his favourite tool, if a common workman like himself were permitted such a luxury. No other tool when working with wood was so much an extension of the hand. The thought made him look at his hands, which were still strong and steady for all his years, though they now bore the seams and creases of many decades' work. His father's prayer sprang to his mind. Let my son's life be a thing of use, Lord. May he be a tool in your hands. Kua Ai's life had grown into just that, a thing of use. In the fifty-eight years leading up to this day of which his story would end, he had become the finest builder of boats there had ever been on the island of Hiwiloa. It is a mark on a map around which the whole of the Pacific wheels. Mountains rise from glittering blue water, a place found, then lost, then found again, until finally pinned to existence by lines of latitude and longitude. By numbers on a map, Hiwiloa, west of the Marquesas, north of the Cooks, one of a thousand Pacific islands, a thousand miles to anywhere. Kua'ai grew up chasing crabs at the lagoon's edge, playing in the black sands while the tides came and went. His father was a half-caste woodcutter who harvested the high forest of its speciality timber, a particular tree which his grandmother's tribe called the walking tree and which the local boat-building industry called perrinwood and which books called nothing at all. It was light and strong, like Kua'ai's father, and the boat-builders from the harbours were willing to pay for it. On many afternoons as a child... Kua'ai followed his father as they trekked the winding beaches to the nearest town, the burden of perron wood balance between brown shoulders. Near the docks, amid the businesses and the hustle of the island's traders, they sold their day's work for paper money, and sometimes bought meats and cheeses, and shiny steel nails that could be bent into fish hooks. Young Kua'ai would watch the comings and goings of the people in the ships, the men in uniforms who strode down gangplanks from enormous metal steamers. He will lower his two islands at the same time, his father liked to say to him as they watched the crowds, one old and one new. And then his father would tousel his dark hair. You can live in both. In the evening they walked the beaches back home. They lived in a place called Wikwai. It was not a town so much as a grouping of farmsteads, a collection of families. In truth, it was the valley that was called Wikwai, which in the old language meant fast water, and should the families have moved away and other people moved in, they likely would have called the place Wikwai too, out of sheer fittingness of language to God's creation. Perhaps it had happened a dozen times in the long history of the island's habitation. The Wikwai of Kua'ai's childhood was a place of numerous bantam chickens and occasional spotted pigs, of children seen only in motion. The huts were made of wood and pili grass, and were for the most part surrounded on three sides by taro patches scratched into the rich volcanic earth. There were no flowers planted among the homes. One only had to venture into the forest for that. 
Cultivation was saved for breadfruit and taro and sweet potato of several varieties, planted in neat rows. For beauty, you only had to cast your eyes up towards the mountains, or out towards the waterfalls that gave the valley its name, or down to the base of the hills where the land opened to the vast blue-green lagoon that circled the island in a protective embrace. Wikwai was not poor or rich, because those tomes are meaningful only in their relativity to other states of being. And for most of the people from the place called Wikwai, there was only Wikwai. Suffice it to say, it was a place in which you could be endangered by starvation, provided you refused to eat. A place you might face homelessness, provided you chose not to build a house from the materials easily at hand. It was even a place where you could find trouble and tragedy if committed to the search. Kua'ai was raised in a home at the far edge of the valley, because his half-wild father was uncomfortable with more than one foot out of the forest. On the Sabbath his mother brought him to the tiny chapel where they taught him the right ways, but the other six days belonged to the island, to its beaches and forests, to its simple rhythms, old beyond old. When Kua'ai had finally counted the enough years... His father brought him along on expeditions for timber. During these times they'd travel on foot for many days through the trees, across streams and upward into the mountains, to which cool mists clung in a perpetual cloak of fog. And Kua'ai's father would remark each time as if it were the first. They say the top of the mountain is just beyond here, but I do not believe it. And then he'd ask, Have you ever wanted to touch a cloud? And Kua'ai would say each time, Yes, and they'd laugh as they ran together, knocking aside damp green fronds, arms splayed, fingers raking the grey-white mists that wafted upwards along the verdant slope. Kua'ai learned that clouds felt like nothing at all more than this sensation, of running, of damp so small and fine and sharp that it is experienced as icy needles on the bare skin of one's face. And he learned that here, in the clouds on a natural terrace at the edge of the cliff, were the trees which books called nothing at all. They were not tall trees, their bark black and sooty with age, long fronds a silver grey, drooping almost to the ground. The trees were wide and gnarled, and to an individual ancient. And some part of Kua'ai recognised that it hurt his father to kill them. Kua'ai and his father took only one tree at a time, chopping a full morning to piece out the core wood, which was the part that the boat builders wanted for their frames. Around the trunk of each tree was tethered a thin white rope of screw-pine fibre, which bound the tree to an anchor of rock some dozen feet away. "'Why are the trees tied to rocks?' Kua'ai asked. "'To keep them in one place. "'Are the winds so great?' Before people came to the islands, there were only trees to act as people, so the trees walked and spoke. When people came, the trees retreated to the mountains and forgot their speech, but never their travels. That's just a story, the boy said. No, his father replied. It is the old magic. In school, they say there's no such thing. This is the last of it on the island, his father said. There used to be more but that was before I was born. He gestured for the boy to look closer. Now there's just this. Kua'ai bent and inspected the bindings. 
in the mud beneath the trees could be discerned a well-beaten rut where each tree had walked the limits of its tether in a circular path. The boy nodded to himself, accepting the possibility of his own eyes. His father continued. For a long time the walking trees looked down from the mountain and watched over the island people. Later, when the Kuhiki came with their steel and their cattle, the trees began throwing themselves off the cliff. Why would they do such a thing? His father shrugged. Who can guess at the ways of trees? When my mother's people learned of the suicides, her father climbed the mountain and tied all those you see here. Now they are all that remain. Kuai put his hand to the bark. It's hot. They burn slowly from the inside out. The boy nodded again. Why are they so old? Because they have been alive a long time, his father answered matter-of-factly. I mean, I don't see any young ones. I don't see the saplings. There are no saplings. Why? Things without book names often vanish from the world. The walking trees are going to vanish? There is steel here now, his father said. Magic cannot stay. And then, after a long and silent contemplation, Kua'ai asked, Why do you not believe the top of the mountain is just beyond here? Because I do not believe in the top of the mountain. Even in the wildest, oldest valleys of Hiwiloa, school was an option most families indulged their children in to some extent. Almost every child began school at some early age and thereafter could choose to attend and learn or not. They learned the book history of the islands, how the first people lived under chieftains in superstition and darkness, until there arrived from across the water a new people who came in small numbers at first, but who kept coming, bringing roads and schools and medicines, and the need for medicines. Most of the valley's children attended school so long as they had curiosity of wider things, and once satisfied of their place in the world, afterwards contented themselves with the narrower aspects of daily living along the water's edge. There were, after all, chores to be done, and fish to be caught, and adventures to be had, each in proportion to one's temperament. Kua'ai was unusual not in his curiosity of the wider world. There were others who shared his curiosity, but he was rare for the narrow focus of his interest. Even as a child, Kua'ai was fascinated by boats. He watched them from the sandy shores of the lagoon as they plied the trade route around the island, sails guttering in the wind that blew from the east. He loved the way they moved, leaning hard into the waves under their burden of wind. Laklani Pritchard, one of the oldest and most prosperous boat-builders on the island, noticed the child watching the boats as he played in the water under his father's watchful eye. Laklani had never had children of his own. He bent towards young Kuai, gesturing with a small chunk of wood he'd been whittling on to pass the time. He placed a piece of wood on the water near the boy's knee. A boat for you, he said. But Kuai only looked down at the crude chunk of flotsam. A boat is like a knife, he said, and he cut the water with the blade of his hand in a way that made no splash at all. In embarrassed outrage, Kuai's father sprang to his feet and apologised to Laklani for the boy's rudeness. The old boat-builder only stared at the child and said nothing. The next day, Laklani made the long walk to their house at the edge of the valley 
and made formal offer to apprentice the boy. This was a great honour, and when Kua'ai's father expressed his surprise, Laklani would only say, The boy has a sense for boats. Kua'ai grew strong over the coming years, though never tall, and in addition to tending his employer's garden and fetching water and cooking meals, he learned through meticulous attention to detail the craft of woodworking and the art of building ships. He was, by all accounts, a prodigy and mastered quickly the hard-earned lessons that most shipwrights spent a lifetime accumulating. In the late evenings, while the valley's other young men played either peaceful matches of mataroa or violent battles of cricket, he would walk the shores near his home, taking note of the water, for the old shipwright had told him that to know boats you had to first know the ocean. On the western shores of Hiwiloa, in the lee of the wind, the water is calm, an undulating blue expanse broken only by the spouts of dolphins. But on the windward side of the island, unprotected by the lagoon, the waves took a different character, and here the ocean revealed its true nature. Kua'ai walked the black sands down to the waterline until incoming waves slammed his knees, threatening to yank his feet away. He stood, and he watched as the sliding ocean drew back from the shore like an arm ready to punch, and then struck a curling blow to the island. Again and again. Such was the ocean's dislike, and the shining blue water rose, beautiful and deadly, glistening in the bright sun, pulling itself to the height of a man, then taller, rising like indignation, to crash down in a frothing tide that surged up the sand toward him, and Kua'ai knew it was only a special kind of boat that might go safely beyond the lagoon and out onto the open ocean. When the opportunity presented itself, he still accompanied his father on expeditions for timber. They returned to the mountain terrace, season after season, year after year, while the price of the precious commodity climbed, until finally, together, when Kua'ai was sixteen, they faced the last of the ancient gnarled walking trees. It stood among a field of stumps, a final dying specimen, so hot it could barely be touched. His father hesitated with his axe. "'We can buy new nets,' his father said, "'new shoes and a bolt of cloth for your mother.' The axe fell. His father collected the last segment of white screw-pine rope. They did not talk much as they returned to Wigwai, backs bent under their combined burden of corewood, grief and guilt. And when the timber was laid out at Laklani's shop, Kua'ai made the old carpenter understand this wood was to be the last of its kind. Then we will build something special from it, you and I, the old man said. Later that season, when the boat was just begun, Kua'ai's father died of an epidemic that burned the black scene through the island, starting in the harbours, striking down the families with old names and leaving the new. The funerals were grand and sad, and Kua'ai was strong for his mother and did not cry, supporting her slumping form while they walked from the grave. And afterward he could not recall the funeral, could not recall if it had been raining or dry, if the elder's words had been solemn or uplifting. He could not recall his mother's expression as they lowered her husband into the ground. He could not recall if there had been flowers, though he supposed there must have been. He couldn't recall anything about the day and sometimes he wondered if it had been there at all. 
Laklani pulled him aside. The old families die worst of the new sickness, he said. Be glad for your mixed blood. Utterly lost, Kuai threw himself into his craft, sublimating his grief into an obsession for the new boat. He shaped the last of the wonderful pear and wood into a frame of his own design, building rails along the sides like the ribs of a great starving dog. The wood from walking trees was stronger and more flexible than the other kinds of timber, resulting in strange design possibilities. He combined the old outrigger's design with the new shapes he'd seen in the harbours, and to that eccentric compound he blended a shape seen only in his head. He curved and raked the transom, pushing the limits of the material, forming the hull into a confluence of strong, malleable planks that developed more and more as the summer wore on, into something that looked decidedly alien. The lagoon had never seen such a boat. Sitting on the centre beam, he paused in his work. Why do the old families die worst? Laklani did not look up from his sanding. The old families are good at many things, he said. Staying is not one. On the hottest days, the old carpenter's niece, Elisa, would bring them coconuts of cool milk. She was a year older than Kua'ai, and already the long-suffering wife of a shopkeeper's son in nearby Ahana, a large town a half-day's travel along the beach. Disinclined towards his father's occupation, disinterested in manual labour and dismissive of his nuptial vows, her husband had also the fault of choosing occasionally to expend his considerable untapped energies through quite astonishing violence. And after those occasions, if she could walk, she came to stay with her uncle for a while. To Kua'ai she arrived as a chameleon, this sleek, large-eyed creature with a wide, fine mouth, whose bruises changed colours over the weeks that followed. She watched the men while they worked, and after looking for a long afternoon at the structure developing before her eyes, she said her first words, "'It looks like two machetes.' The old carpenter laughed from his stool, saying, "'That's it, then. We have found a name for her. Two machetes.' and he ran up to his niece and kissed her hairline. Thank you. It is good luck when a woman names a boat. Elisa seemed to blossom under the attention, and though her cheekbones no longer quite matched each other, her smile was a thing which ate her entire face, and she was suddenly transformed and so beautiful that Kua'ai felt his face grow flushed. He put the oar down and stared openly at this striking girl who had such an amazing plentitude of wide, perfect teeth, and then, thinking of her husband, he wondered how she had managed to keep them. Word of two machetes spread, and as the weeks passed, the old carpenter's shop received many visitors, some from as far away as Moloa, the island's biggest town which sat on the opposite shore. There were offers made, and always old Laklani would put them off, saying, I never discuss money until a boat is finished. But he'd tell Kua'ai the numbers as they ate their lunch, and the seventeen-year-old hadn't known such money existed in the world. On the last day before the boat was finished, when there were only the tow rails and riggings left unfinished, Kua'ai went back to the launch after dinner and intended to watch the sun go down in the trees beyond the lagoon. He climbed up onto the deck of two machetes. Elisa found him in the twilight. She touched the back of his neck and did not ask what was wrong, only kissed his wet cheek softly with her amazing mouth, an invitation to a deeper kind of kiss, and he accepted, 
moving toward her, running a hand along her sinewy contours. Though her skin and eyes were dark, she was long-waisted in a way not found among native islanders, and he discovered her hands in his, larger than his, some mixture of ancestry producing long, delicate fingers. And then she guided him back, her hair a black wash across his chest as she whispered into his mouth, My husband cannot, unless he beats me first. I would never, Kua I said. She replied only, I know, like she understood this, and their teeth grazed each other slickly as she moved on him. And the sensation was of something remembered, though never before experienced, as if his body knew it already. Like dreams of falling, of dying, might one day make those acts seem familiar. And in the middle of it, he felt connection to everything that had come before, and everything that might come after. And he knew that when he one day tallied his life before the god of the little chapel, he would count this among his very favourite things. The heat of the day brought the bidders again, and without very much trouble the boat was sold to a merchant from Ahana who seemed truly grateful for the opportunity to buy it, and who paid extra to have the sails done in red canvas. Elisa and Kua Ai used every smallest excuse to be alone and played at love several times a day over the next few weeks. If Laklani knew, he said nothing. On the morning her husband came for her, Elisa had a nightmare that she was falling, and Kua Ai woke to her gazing down at him from her elbows. Do you love me? she asked. Yes, he replied without thought or hesitation. Elisa's husband was called Maya, and he arrived at midday accompanied by a group of big men who worked hard at looking as if they were all simply out for a casual stroll. Maya was tall and broad-shouldered and fair. His eyes were sandy-coloured like his hair, and he moved easily among the people of the valley, talking and laughing as his men walked toward the boatworks. He wore a shirt like brown canvas in the style of men from the mainland, though when he spoke, Kua'ai could detect no accent. Alisa, he called out when he saw her. I see your visit did you some good. You look well. Alisa stood frozen, gone pale and expressionless, the asymmetry of her broken cheekbones once again apparent. She looked suddenly most unwell. Maya strode up to her and gathered her in his big arms. I've missed you, he said, then whispered so his friends could not hear. I'm sorry. He turned back to the crowd of people he'd brought. Let's celebrate! That night there was a large pit dug into the ground and lined with stones, and in it was roasted three whole fatted pigs that Maya paid extravagantly for, and most of the nearby families were involved. They danced around the fire well into night. Laklani remained distant refusing to be pulled in by the lure of festivities. Kuai sat on the rise near the waterfall, watching the party with a sense of dread. In the night, Elisa managed to get away, and she found him sitting on a rock with his feet in the water. Let's run away, she said, out of breath from her scramble up the hillside. Tonight, let's leave this place. The waterfall cascaded down and above, splashing into the pool, making ripples on the water. Where would we go? Kua I asked. I don't care. Let's take a boat for ourselves and let the wind take us where it's going. There are other islands beyond these. 
I couldn't steal. You build most of them. It wouldn't be stealing. It would. You'd just be taking one back. You deserve a boat of your own for all the work you've done. It wouldn't be right. I don't care what's right. Let's go now before my husband comes looking for me. This island is my home. I can't just leave in the middle of the night. Then when? Kuai stared at her. When it's not my home anymore. Please, Elisa, he whispered. I can't. She dropped her eyes and something happened. A change like a chameleon and she appeared a different kind of creature than she had been moments before. Deflated, the hope having seeped out of her. I... I began. She put a finger to his lips, silencing him. Then she turned and went back to her husband. In the morning, the couple was gone. Laklani did not speak to Kuwa'ai for three days, and when he did, said only, You let her go back. Kuwa'ai blinked at the accusation. He had no response. And in the coming days, Kuwa'ai found he could not endure the emptiness the silent work, the daily lack of her that would have no end. He probed the place that she'd occupied in his life and found only a silent, hemorrhaging cavitation. He walked the beach to the nearest town where he sought out a tavern to dull his wound. But the old man behind the bar, who managed the trick somehow of being both old and wise beyond his years, only listened to his plight, and when Kua'ai asked for a second drink, said, "'Drink won't help.' and pointed out through the window at life going on in the street, a small gathering of dark-haired girls talking in the market, and Kua'ai understood what the old man meant. Kua'ai charged across the street and asked the prettiest one to go for a walk with him. She agreed, and he discovered her name was Anna, and two nights later, in her parents' house, while the rest of the island slept, he discovered her body was like a thing remembered, and her taste like ripe melon. Laklani's tendency towards silence devolved into a kind of verbal longhand. They communicated only about boats, and only if the boats were projects they worked on. Their lunchtimes became studies in quiet bereavement, and Kua'ai chose eventually to work straight through the day. The boat works prospered, and Kua'ai's reputation began to eclipse that of his master. People came from faraway places to gaze at the ships. One evening... A rich man from Motowa visited Laklani in the boatyard, bringing with him a tall, long-haired daughter who hung back from the business talk of men, instead wandering to inspect the half-finished boat. She caressed the tools with a delicate index finger. "'You're the craftsman my father talks about,' she said. And Kua'ai stopped his hammering and turned his head in search of whom she might be speaking to. She laughed, mistaking his ignorance for humour, but astride him later that night, she explained why buyers were drawn to his work above others. "'Your boats are beautiful,' she said. And then she lay back on his sheets while he slid above her, and she showed him what action to take so no dishonour would come of it. Afterwards, as they lay in the stillness of his bunk, she asked, "'How is it that boats can sail against the wind?' "'Not straight against it,' he said, "'but only at an angle.' And he told her that the minor god... 
Kulipali had bequeathed his tongue so that men might make keels, and he told her about the steel hulls of ships he'd seen in the harbours, and about the humble outrigger that had conquered oceans, and he told her that in the old language, which he could not speak, the word for horse was canoe which walks on land. It was nearly seven months later that Laklani spoke to him regarding something other than work. The broken silence was shocking as a thunderclap, and Kua'ai could not, for a moment, pry understanding from the words. What did you say? Kua'ai asked. Elisa has a baby. Kua'ai stood perfectly still for a moment. Then, without taking off his work belt, he climbed down from the launch, scrambled up the shoreline, and set out at a dead run for the town of Ahana. He found the town larger than he remembered, but not so large that people might be strangers to each other. Still, oddly, it took him nearly half an hour to find someone who knew of a young girl named Elisa with wide, perfect teeth. The man said only, I know who you're talking about, and there was an irony in his voice Kua'ai would recognise only later while he sat behind bars and went over the events again and again in his mind. The house was small and wooden and deteriorated, with the wind shutters amassed in the dirt below the windows. Weeds grew all around the structure, and from within could be heard the squalling of an infant. Having come this far, Kua'ai found he could advance no further. He stood in the road as if lacking any sense at all, and those who noticed him thought he was either an imbecile or in love, and in either case pitied him equally. Movement through the window caught his attention drawing him forward so that he found himself walking. And in the doorway, which was open on broken hinges, the sound of the baby's crying was very loud, and when his eyes had begun to adjust, he heard Elisa gasp, and in that instant they saw each other. Her teeth had been smashed out at the gum line, as if by a hammer. Kua'ai turned and walked away. He found Maya in the third tavern, and buried an all in one sandy-coloured eye. Maya did not die immediately, but instead spent nine agonising days at it, eventually succumbing to an infection which, by his last hours, had ballooned the left side of his face into a tumescent and suppurating cassaba melon, which finally split along the jawline with a fetid smell of corruption that drove the nurses from the room. And still he had not the sense enough to pass, but hung on throughout the night, alternately howling out from his deathbed and gagging noisily on the stench of his own septic brew. Afterward, they laid him to rest during a quiet ceremony, placing him into the ground next to his wife, Elisa, who had been found with her wrist slit. She'd taken Kua'ai's withdrawal for rejection and killed herself before she learned of her husband's fate. On the evening of the funeral, while Kua'ai sat shackled to a bench in the Ahana courthouse, it was agreed by all interested parties that the cause of Maya's death had been exactly what it was. An unfortunate, though not altogether unforeseeable or undeserved, sepsis of the eye. They absolved Kua'ai of responsibility for the death, released him from custody, and told him never to return to Ahana, or he would be hanged. What about the child? The boy looks like his mother, the judge said, cutting to the point. Her husband's parents have offered to raise the child as their own to replace the one they've lost. They did such a fine job the first time, Kua'ai said.
We've offered you your life for nothing. I suggest that you requite yourself of the bargain and do not trouble the boy again or we may change our minds. And with that, the matter was settled. Two burly guards escorted Kua'ai to the town limits and he left Ahana for the last time. Old Laklani, when he finally heard of what happened, began speaking again in Kua'ai's presence. They spent a drunken night at the boatworks crying for Elisa, who died too young and left behind an orphan to be reared by jackals. I have no sons, Laklani said, and now no niece. What did they call the boy? They never said. There can be protection in a name. The Kahuiki can't remember what they can't write down. They can't write down what they can't pronounce. When you have your own sons, remember, it is a good name that can't be pronounced by outsiders. Work, as Kua'ai had found before, was a poor analgesic for a wounded conscience. But there were other ways. Although Wikwai was a place and not really a town, it came to be known for the boats it launched into the lagoon. The valley prospered, and over the next year, Kua'ai played at love with many of the girls who lived there, eventually coming to favour for reasons unclear to himself, darker girls over lighter, taller over short. And when he realised this, his contrary nature caused him to set his sights on the illegitimate daughter of Wikwai's seamstress, Iasepa, who herself was reputed to be of the offspring of a whaler from beyond the islands. The girl's name was Mara, she was short and unlikely, her hair almost blindingly blonde in the summer sun. When Kua'ai finally managed to drive away the swarm of boys that seemed always to orbit her, he found her intelligent and receptive. She spoke of travel and seeing the world. They explored each other's bodies the first time in the garden behind her house, driving themselves into the dark earth with such fervour that no one who saw the print could have doubted what took place there. The affair continued for an entire season, and the girl talked and talked on the subject of people, to the exclusion of other subjects, disgorging every smallest gossip in an unending torrent of hearsay, until Kua'ai could stand it no more. When the wind changed, Kua'ai told her it was over. At first she denied it, then grew angry. "'Look at you, then look at me,' she said, whipping her blonde hair over her shoulder. "'You're beneath me.' Then I'm doing you a favour, he said. I hope you burn in hell, she said. The next day, Kua'ai found the boat shop's windows had been smashed out by a rock and all his tools were stolen. I will fix the glass, he told Laklani. He paid children to fish his tools from the lagoon. Their work continued through several seasons, and during this time Laklani gradually gave over control of the boat shop to Kua'ai who accepted the work with enthusiasm, but resisted his employer's attempts at financial remuneration. He and Laklani had long, contentious arguments on the subject of Kua'ai's compensation, with Laklani attempting to pay more and Kua'ai demanding less, while the whole valley smiled at their backward negotiations, which sometimes got quite heated. Laklani eventually took to lying about how much he was paying, and Kua'ai had to be sure to count his salary carefully because of Laklani's tendency to slip extra money in among a confusing heap of small denominations. 
Finally, one morning, Laklani did not arrive at the boat shop as a working man just after sunup, but closer to noon as a visiting companion. It was a small thing that neither of them discussed this tardiness, and when Laklani arrived at the same time the following day, they were both sure of what had just happened. Thus was succession achieved. Laklani continued to visit the boatworks often, occasionally lending a spare set of hands, which, though their usefulness had declined, Kawa'ai took a sick sort of satisfaction in overcompensating. And thus were their reverse negotiations resumed, and reversed once more, with Kua'ai attempting to pay more, and old Laklani demanding less. Laklani's visits varied in length in accommodation to his moods and health, though truthfully his health was remarkably good for a man his age. He had descended into a stolid and steadfast species of enfeeblement which gave every indication of providing his continued existence above ground well into the next century. He had never smoked and drank only wine, and then in moderation. He had eaten fish from clean water on every day of his life. Though slightly hunched and less mobile than he had once been, he was still trim and able to get about slowly to where he was going. His persistence in the world at his current low level of functioning appeared so sustainable that it was widely opined that he would live until something killed him, which is what happened, and the way it happened shocked no one. Several days before his seventy-first birthday, he fell from the rigging of a boat under construction. He did not rise. Kua'ai found him slumped on the deck, wood chisel still in hand. He was put to earth among the tall grass, and all who knew him agreed his had been a fine and full life. They stacked black lava rocks upon his grave, and upon the rocks was laid a large wooden plank carved in intricate filigree, the likeness of a ship. With the summer heat came restlessness and a tall, dark girl named Lura, whose teeth flashed when she talked. Lura arrived with the trade winds on an enormous creaking cargo vessel from the outer islands. Kua'ai pulled her aside the first hour he met her, and he kissed her at the docks. That night they met in the trees at the edge of the forest, and she lay back, long arms circling in the warm earth while her legs locked around him, and afterwards, in the golden brazenness of morning's first light, he went to her man and told him she no longer belonged to him. The man looked down at Kua'ai, who was three inches shorter, and he must have recognised the determination in his eye, or perhaps he'd heard about the all, because he said, If she wants you, she does. Take her then. I have several, he said. You can't keep a woman who won't be kept. Kua'ai said only, Not for long, anyway, and he put the all back in his belt. The next day, before the put-upon and disgruntled elders, and before all the startled populace of the valley, Kua'ai and Lura declared themselves married. She bore him two children in quick succession, though the eldest, a girl, never took hold of the world and was buried with a name, Agatha, in a plot near Kua'ai's father that neither parent could bring themselves to visit. She retreated into a miserable disconsolation, he into his own rage, and Kua'ai would have burned down the forests and swallowed the streams and eaten the mountain stone by stone until his teeth were all broken to the gum line, because he found the world was not large enough to contain his anger, 
and he seethed with an inner heat that left him, after many months, a man of blackened cinders, and finally as cold and empty and disconsolate as his wife. But from the cinders rose another child, a son, grown like a sapling in the newly churned soils of their heart, and still Kua'ai could not bring himself to love again all at once, but only in instalments as the child grew stronger. And at two years they finally named him, and they called him Ta'io Hokilulai Hai, which in the old language meant the one who stayed. It is a good name, Kua'ai said to his wife, which can't be pronounced by outsiders. Ta'io was a bright child like his father, and Kua'ai showed him how wood could be worked, and together they built a small wooden box so that the boy's mother might have a place for her necklaces. Next they made model boats to be floated at the edge of the lagoon, and Kua'ai told him a boat is like a knife. A third child swelled Lura's belly while she still played games with the second. She let little Ta'io touch her stomach as it expanded, and together they took short walks through the valley hand in hand, made equal by their off-balance waddling, while she explained to him the uses of things he was curious of. She told him where fish came from and why they preferred the water, and she explained in great detail their astounding facility at breath-holding. It's why they gasp so much when they're pulled onto shore, their relief at breathing fresh air again. And she told him the sea was blue because all the green had been used by the trees, and all the black by the night, and all the brown by the dirt. And blue was the colour least used by nature, and so was the only pigment left in large enough quantities to fill up a thing as big as the ocean. The boy, though he was still so young he wet his bed, nodded solemnly, because this was all very logical to him. Together they walked the beaches and collected shells in the small wooden box. She spent every waking moment with her son, like she knew something was wrong. And in the tenth month, when the new baby still hadn't come, she asked that little Ta'io stay in the room with her even while she slept, as if she could soak him in to make up for all the time she would lose, all the things she would miss. She put away the little clothes that she'd been making that no baby would ever wear. She put away the little pigskin pouch that no baby would ever sleep in. She struggled, too, to put away her fear, but it was not so easily folded up and stored away. She looked at her son, who was still so small, and prayed, Please, God, I'm not done yet. But if the God of the little chapel heard her, he gave no sign. So she prayed to the old gods of the island, but they too were silent. Then she prayed to any god, to any being out there that might hear her. Please, she moaned into the nameless darkness, praying at last to it, the final refuge of the hopeless. But only pain answered her prayer, a burning heat inside her which grew over the days which followed. Her abdomen pulled taut and stony, but grew no larger, while her strength ebbed until she could not walk, and finally the lowest form of God was summoned. Without the power to cure, but at least to diagnose, a big man with a German accent in a medical bag brought in from the harbour town. The baby inside me is dead, isn't it? she asked. And he examined her and gave her the news. There is no baby. There never was any baby. She turned her head away, 
but I felt it kick. But the big German only shook his head. No, he said. Only fluid. The cyst has ruptured now. Then he closed his medical bag. The infection is very advanced. I'm sorry. Little Taeo stayed close to his mother after the strange man left, and he did what the grown-ups asked because even he sensed something was not as it should be. And only when the screaming began did he leave. And only when it ceased did he cry, holding his mother's hand in the dark while the adults around him wailed, and his father raged like a man without his mind, tearing their house down around them. And during the night the distant chapel bell tolled, and they took his mother away, wrapped in palm fronds. Only one woman remained, saying, There are some things conceived which can't be born. Finally, in the empty room, without his mother's heat, without his father, there awakened in Taeo the first understanding that people can end, that life can end, that nothing would ever be all right again. Kua'ai had known pain before, and knew himself well enough to suspect he might kill somebody, so did not stay for the funeral. And the boy lost both parents in a single stroke. When Kua'ai returned several months later, he did not speak of where he'd been or what he'd done. He inquired as to his son, and one late night stopped by the house of the family who'd been caring for him. The woman saw Kua'ai in the doorway, and she said nothing to him. Instead, she turned and called softly into the house. Taeo. And then, softer still, when she had the boy's attention, she said, Your father is here. Kua'ai took his son home, and in the morning, with a new child apprentice, returned to building boats. The valley of Wikwai changed subtly with the passing of years, while the rest of the island shifted around them. The sicknesses came and went. The old ways grew older, the new ways newer. The cattle ranches grew larger, eating more of the land. In the harbour communities the outsiders kept coming until you might walk the streets and see few besides. Enough different walks of people in all shades and colours speaking such a variety of languages that Kua'ai had to wonder at how many types of men the world might contain. It seemed to him a flagrant excess on the part of the maker. And with the influx of people came the steady, inexorable reorganisation of power, a thing which had always been happening since the first moment the steel touched the island, but now had reached a tipping point. For a time, talk of annexation was common as talk of weather. And as with talk of weather, sometimes in the distance there could be heard the evidence of thunder. But those rains never reached Wigwai, not directly but in a thousand little ways, in the number of ways rain reaches the ocean, Wikwai felt the storm. He was a man called Underhill. He'd left Hiwiloa as a landed man and returned six years later with a charter, already the veteran of numerous territorial appropriations that had all begun to run together the way waterfalls run into streams, which run into the lagoon. He returned with his signed articles and with the authority of foreign gunships and the title local administrator to the island. Auspices were invoked. He wore a formal black suit despite the heat and despite his size. To the locals, he became known as the Administer.
Welcomed home by the cattle ranchers and businessmen of which he was one, he wasted little time in asserting regulation over Matoa and Dahana and eventually expanded his sphere of influence until it stretched around the whole island. Legislation was adopted from faraway lands. Men were needed to enforce these prescripts. They called these men deputies of the Protectorate, but they were really just the administer's men, his sons and cousins and nephews. One windy dawn in his son's seventeenth year, Kua Ai walked the sandy beach of the northern shore, watching the waves crash in while the sun rose out of the glittering water. It was beautiful beyond beautiful, even still after all these years of looking at it. Later that morning, as he breakfasted with his son on poi and coconut, he said, This next boat will be the last I build. Why do you say that? Ta'eo asked. Because it is true, he said matter-of-factly. The following morning, the two of them set out for the mountains, and Kuai'ai told his son that the top was falsely rumoured to be in close proximity. He then asked him if he'd ever wanted to touch a cloud. The field of stumps was still there, unchanged, as Kuai'ai sensed it would be for another thousand years, because walking trees, in addition to being both stronger and more pliable than normal wood, also resisted rot. Kua'ai put down his axe and told Ta'eo about the special trees that had once carpeted the mountainside. He told him that they jumped from the cliffs if not tethered, and that they began jumping when the first outsiders came to the island. I hate the outsiders, Ta'eo said. You are them, partly, as am I. I don't care. It's the same as hating yourself. The boy looked around at the field of stumps. Where did the trees go? Into the lagoon, one by one, Kua'ai said. Things without book names often disappear from the world. And after climbing for most of the afternoon, they finally located the sapling. It was not yet gnarled, nor thick, nor impressive, really, in any aspect other than its unusual pitted bark. Though it had reached already some measure of its full height, for they were not ever tall trees. It still swayed gently when Kua'ai pushed his weight against it. His hand came back black, painted with soot. I planted this one in the crazy time after your mother died. I was here many months looking for the seed, which are small and curved and brown like cashews. I only found five. I planted three. Why only three? I hoped three would be enough. Why plant trees when they'll want only to die? Where... Are the two seeds you didn't plant? Back at the house, in your mother's wooden box. Of the three I planted, this is the only one that grew. When it sprouted, I returned and tethered it to a stone. The tree, in its restless eagerness to die, had worn a circular path around the stone, held back only by its thin white rope. This tree is already fifteen. They grow slowly. I planted it so that one day... You could cut it down to build your masterpiece. Taio touched the soft bark, then looked at his father. It's hot. They burn from the inside, Kua'ai said. How? I think they always burn. I think they spend their lives burning. I don't want to build boats. Kua'ai took a step away from the trees and looked over the cliff. I know, he said. I have known for years. I want you to do something for me, at least. What? 
when you have a son, tell him the story of these trees. They knelt at the roots, and Kua'ai bent forward to caress the pitted bark. The tree vibrated, pulling back from his touch, dark roots twisting along the ground while from above came a sound like wind through the fronds, though there was no wind. The tree strained against his tether, yearning for the cliff. Kua'ai saw that if a blade were touched even lightly to the taut and creaking rope, the tree would fly to its death. I come as your friend, Kua'ai whispered to the tree, to give you what you want. With that he stood. He raised the axe high and brought it down with all his strength, burying the steel in the base of the trunk. The tree shook for a moment, then stilled. They spent half a day piecing out the core wood, then they took the precious commodity down the mountain. Five days later, after much planning and careful calculation of where the small measures of precious wood might best be used, they began Kua'ai's opus. They worked methodically through the season, and Kua'ai was careful not to talk of his son's plans. He thought of his father, Hiwiloa, his two islands at the same time. In the days before books trapped history, the island people had been travellers. They'd begun their journey long ago, expanding outward from some forgotten homeland, jumping from island to island, and at each new place there were some for whom paradise was not enough, and so the process would continue, some smaller subset rising up and moving on to see what lay beyond the horizon. Not so any more. Now the islanders talked of leaving but never did, like the seamstress's blonde daughter Mara, who made a plump wife to a fisherman in town, and who, in addition to a slew of brunettes, had also borne a child as unlikely as herself, a girl with copper-coloured hair, a condition seen only once before in Wikwai, on a traveller from Hamburg the year before, and thereafter the subject of much speculation. Kua'ai thought of the walking tree, and the field of stumps, and of the growing cities, and the steel ships in the harbours, and all the plant-choked trails of Wikwai. The lands were stolen, the old ways fading. It would not be long. Hiwiloa would be one island again, and the island he'd known as a child would be gone forever. In the fourth month of construction, at dusk, as Kua'ai and his son were finishing the interior joinery and beginning the bulkhead housing, a group of men entered the boat shop, Ta'eo heard the bell and walked around to the front to see who had arrived. "'I'm here to see the shipwright,' a deep voice proclaimed. Kua'ai put down his tools. He walked inside and found four men and a teenage boy glancing around the shop. He recognised the black coat immediately. The administer was enormous. He had big arms and a big chest and a big belly that swayed independently from the rest of him as he moved slowly around the room. Florid, pockmarked and bolding, he appeared far older than Kuai had imagined him. But it was the old way a bull gets old. He was one of those men for whom ageing is not a deconstructive process, but one of simple sedimentation, a gradual building upon of layers so that you had the idea there remained a bitter and fossilised embryo buried somewhere beneath all the fat and muscle and folds of skin that had accumulated. So you're the carpenter, the administer said. I nodded. I want you to build me a boat. I build boats and then I sell them, 
not the other way round. The administer nodded like he understood, but then continued on as if Kua'ai hadn't spoken. I want you to build me the best boat on the water. I build what boats I can. They tell me you're the best. The large man walked past him, moving deeper into the room, and Kua'ai found himself following the administer through his own place of business. I've heard much about you, the administer continued. First years ago, after your trouble, and now these boats. The administer stopped. He stood at the rear of the room, looking out at the boatyard at the edge of the water. God's grace! His companions came to rest behind him, open-mouthed, eyes widening on the half-finished construction in the launch. You are an artist, the administer said. No, I'm just a craftsman. This is more, the big man gestured towards the half-finished boat in the launch, more than just craft, my friend. I make things that are to be used like any craftsman, and like any craftsman there are rules I must follow. A true artist has no rules. You wouldn't want an artist's boat. Why not? It might not float. The administer burst into laughter and clapped one enormous hand on Kua'ai's shoulder. I like you, he bent closer. I like this boat. I want it. I auction my boats when they're finished. I want the boat. It is the way I've always done it. What's the highest bid you've ever taken? Kua'ai told him honestly, and the administer waved off the number in disgust. He snapped his fingers and a heavy guard produced a fold of bills, which the administer then placed forcefully in Kua'ai's hand. This is almost twice that. It's bad luck to sell a boat before it's finished. For seller or the buyer? I'm not sure. Well, the administer said dismissively, we're not superstitious natives, are we? Eh, Isaac? And with that... He winked at the teenage boy he'd brought with him, who, though dark as a native islander, was too lanky and long-waisted to be of pure stock. And Kua'ai was about to speak again, but suddenly could not find the words, halted mid-protest in frozen disbelief, because, though the boy's face was a stranger to him, his teeth were Elisa's. And a moment later the big man laughed uproariously at Kua'ai's afflicted expression, and Kua'ai realised this was the administer's joke, this meeting between him and the boy. The administer knew of their history, or part of it. But looking at the boy, it was obvious to Kua'ai that the joke had been played twice, because the teen looked as confused by his employer's laughter as Kua'ai was informed by it, as if to confirm Kua'ai's suspicion the administer clapped the boy on the shoulder and whispered loudly, I've got a story for you later. Kua'ai searched the boy's dark features for something to call his own and found nothing, nor was there Maya. The boy looks like his mother, Kua'ai said. The boy's face became suspicious. The administer laughed again, absently waving off the drama threatening to unfold before him in the same way he'd waved off Kua'ai's protest earlier. So, then we're agreed. The boat is mine, yeah? The boy, who was beginning to suspect what he might be looking at, glared at Kua'ai from under a growing scowl. 
I'll be back to pick it up in a month, the administer said. Kuai could not bring himself to say another word. Over the next several weeks, Kuai made it his goal to learn as much as he could about the man named Underhill, this island administrator with a fondness for jokes. He travelled to Moloa and spent time in the taverns buying drinks for those in the mood to talk. He learned through subtle cross-examination of the local patronage that the administer was merely the most visible manifestation of an extensive family line, one whose various filaments stretched throughout the hereditary topsoil of the island. His people were from the mainland but had been in the Pacific for generations, amassing land and cattle and power, and more recently new friends in faraway places. One thirsty old fisherman was particularly forthcoming on the subject. His nephew to the mayor, uncle to most of the police force, godfather to the local pastor, and boss to half the cattlemen on the island. A further round of drinks revealed that Underhill was also, most interestingly perhaps, cousin to the town grocer Isaac Porter, who had, in previous happier times, been father to a strapping son named Meyer now many years deceased of a septic eye. The teenage boy who had accompanied Underhill to the boat shop was named Isaac after his supposed paternal great-grandfather and had been put on the administer's payroll as an enforcer. The boy was widely reputed to be good at his job, so good, in fact, that finding people who would talk about him required the last of Kua'ai's drinking money. Not a big lad, one drinker slurred, but fast. He gets the tough jobs. Jobs? He's a close-up artist. What does that mean? No guns. The old man took the last swallow of his drink and glanced towards the door. He carries knives in his belt. Kua'ai returned to the valley the next day, but for perhaps the first time in his life had lost interest in boats. Still, he and his son worked. They had to because Kua'ai had taken money. The boat was no longer theirs, but the administers, and now, in a way, they worked for him, too. Kua'ai wondered at the skills of a man who found himself so easily made employer out of a customer. That difference was everything. Occasionally, people would come to watch the project develop, often making comments or asking questions. But more and more, as the boat took shape around its elegant walking tree backbone, the visitors stood back in reverential silence before the ambition of the project. It was the largest craft Kua'ai had ever attempted, a twenty-eight-foot gaff-rigged sloop, fully nine feet abeam, with an enormous shark-fin keel the size of a man. The single cabin dropped below decks and was large enough for two beds, a table and a large navigation desk. A round window of imported glass looked out from the stern. The sails were bent to the spares with robins and mast hoops the size of dinner plates. The fastenings were bronze. Rising above the mainsail, a jackyard flapped loosely in the breeze along a double row of reefing points. Extending out to the side, like bent wings of an albatross, two knife-thin outriggers balanced the project. Most shipwrights believed you could tell how fast a ship was by looking at it, and everything Kua'ai knew of boats said that this boat was fast, perhaps the fastest craft ever to see the lagoon. Every week or so the administer would send one of his men to check on the progress of the ship, and every week Kua'ai would give the same answer. It'll be done when it's finished. 
young Isaac was never among the men. During the protracted terms of construction, it became apparent that the pale and copper-headed daughter of Mara was in some way involved in the project. Her name was Rebecca, and when Kua'ai finally noticed her among the crowd who stopped by to watch, she had the feeling that he had missed something important, and she had already been hanging around for several days. The first time she brought the coconut of cool milk, Kua'ai realized that she and Taio were lovers. Kua'ai took his drink and stood looking at the two young people for a very long time. The girl was beautiful in a sun-damaged way, a tragedy of dark freckles obscuring her features so that you had to look closely to see what she really looked like. Beneath the paint, her features were straight and fine. He learned through subtle cross-examination of neighbours, friends and visiting patrons that she was soon to be married. The man was large and hot-tempered, a consigner by trade, though he spent much of his time in the taverns. His name was Isban, and he was several parts again her age. He had already worn through the affections of two. She was to be his third wife. Kua'ai went to visit her mother, Mara, one afternoon, and found her house contained only children of every conceivable age, and some quite unconceivable, given her marital partnership. He asked after their mother, and the children proved contradictory compasses on the matter, pointing him in several directions at once. However, by blending the advice of the elders several, he was finally able to guess her whereabouts and found Mara at the waterfall wringing out clothes and slapping them on the hot sun-baked boulders to dry. As he called her name, he realised it was the first time he'd spoken to her in a decade. There was no trace of anything he recognised in her, and he realised those young lovers were other people than those two grey-haired parents standing among the rocks. He's Sione's brother-in-law, and he'll make a good husband for her, Mara said. He's been married twice before, Kua'ai said. And Rebecca won't leave so easily, I told her that already. She won't come crying back home. Aren't you concerned? He makes a good living. He'll provide for her. That's what I'm concerned about. She bent to her work. She won't be marrying a poor fisherman so she can toil all day while he's out to sea. She was meant for more than that. She's in love with Taeo. Mara slowed in her scrubbing but did not look up. That will pass. How can you say such a thing? And then she did look up, and there were cinders in her eyes. It always does. For the first time, Kua'ai realised that after all these years, she had not forgotten. Here was revenge deeper than smashed windows and stolen tools. Without another word, he turned away. There was nothing to be done. Over the next several weeks, Kua'ai was overwhelmed by the insight that all the island stories were coming to a head. There was idle talk in Wikwai of the wedding and Kua'ai learned the date was already set and approaching. And two, the ship was nearing completion. The convergence of all things suffused him with a kind of dread different from all the other dreads he'd suffered in his life. This was the shifting and shapeless dread of one who fears he'll live to see the far shore of what he cannot imagine. That time hanging out there in front of them all, when there would be no boat and no walking trees to replace it, and no Rebecca bringing them coconuts of cool milk, and Taeo on the island without love and without prospects.
He thought of Elisa and her smashed-out teeth, and he thought of her baby. And every day he worked on the boat like the work would last forever, because it was all the time they had. On the last Wednesday, three days before the wedding, a squall blew across the lagoon, churning the blue-green water to chop. The administer and his men arrived soon after at the launch. It is beautiful, the administer said. She'll float, Kua I said. You speak with modesty of a craftsman who knows he has created a masterpiece. Kua I hung his head. Yes, she is a wonder. What is she called? She's the only boat I haven't been able to name. I don't force the names. I wait for something to come to me. Nothing has. You tell my men she's not done. She's not. Looks done to me. There's still veneering to do, and the roamings need work. I'll take it as it is. The steering isn't done yet. When? The administrator snapped. It could be a while. I still have to... My men will come for it in three days. The administrator turned to go, stepping off the ladder. His men followed him up the steep embankment. Her, Kua I called after him. The administrator turned. What? You said it. She's a her. Kua I made a decision. And I'm no longer interested in selling her to you. Are you trying to raise the price? At any price, I've decided she's not for sale. Not for sale? The administrator smiled sadly, like a disappointed father. He made a subtle gesture with his hand, and his men turned and faced the old man. Why? What are you saying? Another boat, but not this one. I can't sell you this one. Then maybe I'll just take it. You can't do that, administrator. Why not? You may control Ahana and Motoa, but you have no authority under my roof. The administrator turned to his bodyguards. Prove him wrong. Against the early morning quiet, on the day on which his story would end, Kawaii woke, shouting from his sleep. He sprang upright in his bunk, sweating like a pig, gasping like a fish taking its first breath of air. It had been a nightmare of falling. Outside his window the sun had yet to rise, but the first hint of pink coloured the sky. He rubbed his bruises softly and tried to work life back into his cramped limbs. In the three days since his meeting with the administer, the marks of his beating had come into full flower. Today, he said to himself in the silence of his room. Today was the wedding. Today the administer would come for the boat. He put on his worn sandals and walked to his son's room where he found his bunk empty and unslept in. On the pillow was a small black box they'd made for his mother's necklaces all those years ago. Kua'ai stared at the box, which shall have been hidden in a drawer in his bedroom. He opened the lid and found it empty. The two remaining seeds were gone. He walked to the back of the shop where the boat was moored at the water's edge, and he found the dock as empty as the wooden box. He descended to the sandy shores of the lagoon and let the water wash over his feet. The wind blew softly against his face, a gentle caress.
I lose everything to you, he whispered to the ocean. He strained his eyes into the distance and saw a dark shape disappearing around the curve of the island. He thought he saw two figures on board, one with copper hair. The darker figure waved. Kua'ai raised his hand to wave goodbye and felt the ties that bound them as father and son pulling taut and finally severing. A boat is like a knife, he said. The ship would glide past the Hana, and though the administer might see its sails in the distance, no other ship would be fast enough to stop it. His son would see the open ocean. There were other islands beyond these. Kua'ai thought of the wedding that would never take place, and then he went back inside to wait for the administer's wrath. Five men climbed down from their horses. They hesitated then, lingering, checking their weapons. The look was exchanged, and they moved deliberately, men of clay no more. Kua'ai didn't trouble himself to unlock the door, so they kicked it down. Isaac spoke first. The boat is gone. It was a fine boat. You disappoint the administration. I expected as much, Kua'ai said. He is not a man used to disappointment. Then I am happy to have acquainted him with it. Isaac smiled. It is you who will be making some old acquaintances today. There was much Kua'ai might have said then. He wondered if most people pleaded. Take what you came for. Isaac stepped toward Kua'ai and placed his left hand on his shoulder. His right hand touched the knife on his hip, pulling the long blade slowly from its sheath. He spoke softly. All he wanted was the boat. That was too much. Isaac lifted his blade to the chest of the man who killed, or was his father. The steel point dimpled the skin above Kua'ai's heart. Without turning, Isaac said to the other riders, Burn everything. Then he smiled Elisa's teeth, as if to give the old shipwright something familiar to follow him into his final denouement. He leaned forward and whispered, When you see my mother... Give her this message. The boy's lips brushed Kua'ai's ear. Tell her she was a coward. Kua'ai nodded and closed his eyes. As was I, he said. But not now. A moment later there came a sharp pain in his chest, followed by a warmth, and the boy embraced him like a son might then closer, clutching while Kua'ai shuddered. Kua'ai took a breath, but it hurt to breathe. His legs gave out. The boy's eyes burned into him as he collapsed to the floor. There were no last words, nothing left to say. Just as a yellow curl of light and then heat, as the men set fire to the boatworks. Above him smoke began to fill the room, while flames lit the shadows. Kua'ai thought of the seeds then, like brown cashews, and he hoped they found purchase in whatever distant soils they came to, 
A place where they might grow strong, if not tall. A place where they might live and not kill themselves. The heat expanded and baked him as the fire raged, and the wood beneath him blackened and charred, until Kua'ai turned his face at last to the cool ocean spray. He curled his hand around the warm wooden rudder, while the boat lurched in the chop and the sails luffed for a moment before filling with wind, and Kua'ai left his island finally. Right, so we've just heard, in my eyes, one of the best stories I've listened to, you know, or read and listened to for a, a damn long time. I've got on the line there, Ted. Ted Kuzmatka, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Thanks for a compliment. I appreciate it. Oh, Ted, honestly, that story is just, it blows me away, to be quite honest. And I've got the young, handsome fella there who's narrated as well, Nick. Nick, how are you doing, sir? Nick Cam. How do, Tony? I'm very well, Tom. Now, uh, what's actually really funny is this is the first time I've heard, and I was just mentioning Nick before, this is the first time I've heard Nick's accent, you know, because normally we'll be, Nick just sends in these audio narrations, which Nick are just stunning as well. But the, the dead proper and correct. And now, you know, I don't mean that in kind of, but now we're hearing like Nick's real accent. And Nick, where are you from then? You know, you're, I'm, a Lan- I'm a Lancashire lad. Lancaster. <laughs> This just accent just creases me up. It's fantastic, to be quite honest. So, guys, it's it's lovely to have both of you on online there, you know, having a little chat about everything, but you know, specifically about this story. So, kind of Ted, what I want to do. I mean, I've known kind of people don't know. I've known Ted for a couple of years with Starship Sova, and he's been very kind enough to kind of give us some stories there and to put one of his stories in Starship Sova. And I forget actually which volume it was in, Ted, which. Volume had, I think it was Bitter Seed, your story in our, you know, Starships Over Stories either. It wasn't one, it may have been volume two or three, but it was very kind of you to do that. But I know you, Ted, as science fiction, you know, like kind of through and through science fiction writer of short stories. You come up with this one and it just blows me away, but it's, it's certainly not science fiction. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a departure for me. Um, for the last couple of years, I've been uh, 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 writing for uh, video games. I've been working on a game called Dota 2, which is it's, uh, it's basically, in terms of story, it's a fantasy game. So I think it, it just got my mind uh, in, the, in that mode of fantasy. And then I had this, this rough idea, this sort of a image of a, of a boat builder uh, who had a son. And it just it just felt more like a more like a fantasy story. When I started the story, I really wasn't even sure where I was going with it, and it just sort of developed into this fantasy. It's not something I, I planned to do, or not something I set out to do, but it just sort of happened accidentally. What I mean, what I'm kind of interested as well is what, just where you said there as well, Ted. It to me as well, it wasn't even fantasy. Oh, I mean, what? Yes, it was a little bit, but you know, there wasn't the kind of heavy tropes in there. Did. And you just said that you kind of started and you didn't know where it was going. Is that how you normally write a story or? <laughs> no, no, I wish it was. Um, usually what happens with a story, I, I, it, they, they start off as little thought experiments. It's sort of like, well, what if this happened? And it usually has something to do you know, with some sort of scientific discovery or something like that. And then I spend an inordinate amount of time uh, researching it. And I always tell myself, all right, I'm going to limit my research on this one to like, only one month of, of 
diving into this subject and researching. And I just end up going crazy with the research. I, and I, sometimes I wonder if uh, the writing isn't just sort of a, a justifiable excuse for me to research all these subjects I'm interested in so I can, you know, basically just enjoy myself researching and then I eventually get around to writing the story. But this one was opposite. This one I just I was able to just write and it was it was actually kind of nice to not to not have to do research for a story. It sort of freed me up to be more playful with the language, I think. Nick, you know, when I, I gave you the story there, and I, I kind of Nick's cut, came over to Starship Sova, you know, and said, total fan of science fiction. And then I kind of hand you this, I mean, I've handed you a couple of strange stories of, of late there, Nick, but what did you, you think of it? Cause, uh, well, it's first read through, I um, thought, where are the spaceships? Where are the spaceships? <laughs> no, no spaceships. And, but uh, it, didn't, <laughs> it didn't take any time at all to just, I mean, I'm a fan of good writing. I'm, I'm I've restricted myself to science fiction for too many years now, and just pretty much nothing but. And uh, but I, when I started my serious reading, it was everything. You know, it was uh, mostly American authors actually, but um, uh, it, the the writing was just so immersive straight away that it, I knew that it'd be an absolute joy to read to to narrate because uh, it, I got a sense of place with it immediately, and. Uh, and 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 the, the the relationships and the and the the series of tragedy mini tragedies as well was just I, you know I was struggling sometimes to uh, to because I've got to be involved when I'm reading it uh, I was struggling to 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 keep it neutral for myself because of uh, you know these these tear inducing moments so yes I loved it spaceships or not. Ted, what do you? What's it for you when you hear it done by someone else? You know, like Nick's put his total own stamp all over your story. Well, usually, um, this experience was a lot different than the ones I've had in the past. I've had I've had stories uh, read, you know, uh, with Starship Soap and also with Escape Pod and and uh, a couple other places. And the, the experience, it, you know, it varies from story to story, but um, this one. I just I, I just was totally blown away. I meant I was, I was I only had a few minutes to to listen to it when you sent me the link, and I was planning on just you know just listening for a minute or two, and I just end up just sitting there mesmerized. I just Nick's voice is like hypnotic. Um, it was really it's just an amazing narration. I ended up listening way way longer than I expected to, and actually was late for what I was supposed to be doing after that. But <clears throat> and then I couldn't wait to get back and, and finish it, which is weird because that's not usually my experience. Uh, you know, with, with uh, things of mine that I've had recorded, and I know other authors who have who are who are like that as well. They uh, well, they can't really usually stand to listen to their stories read because it doesn't match uh, in their head. You know, like the rhythms of the of the sentences and things. But I think I, I just was astounded by by Nick because it really did sort of match in my head the, the way the rhythms of the sentences. So yeah, I just loved it. It was amazing. It was it was incredible. Ted, what was it like then? I know, you, like you say, you, you like that narration, but it's coming from a totally UK voice. Was that a bit strange for you at first, or was it? Because I'm, no, I'm guessing you're writing, you know, everything what you write kind of US in your in your mind. Then we kind of we threw an English voice in there. No, it absolutely fit it. I think because you know the story takes place, you know, out in the out in Polynesia, you know, hundred years ago. So, uh, you know, really an American voice didn't really fit it at all. So I was, when, you know, you express interest in having it narrated, I was like, oh man, how's this going to be? You know, what's, who the heck is it going to get for, for this? I mean, I, I thought you had your work cut out for you. So, um, 
you know, I just I didn't expect it to be uh, to be Nick's voice coming through. As soon as I heard it, I thought this is this is perfect for the story. You know, way more perfect than what an American voice would have been. I think. Nick, where do you start? Honestly, because you know, I've got all this set up here. I could be the best narrator ever with all this kind of equip from equipment point of view, but I cannot for the life of me even attempt to do like a, even when I'm reading out people's bios, you know, that the amount of kind of mistakes and stumbles and kind of bollocks I'm making is just shocking. How do you even like attempt to put, you know, to start something like this and not to mess it up, you know, and to get the kind of praise as well? Well, basically, you've just got, you've got to read the story first, and you've got to get the sense of it. And the most important thing, and this is this is from an actor's standpoint, but uh, from a narrator's standpoint, equally so, is you 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 are not allowed to own the story. It, it's the writer's story. You and you, so you've got you. If you start characterising the uh, the prose, then you you you're buggered. You, you, that's it's not allowed. You've got to say how's this story being told, and uh, how do I convey that story? Without stamping on it and trying to I mean, putting Nick Cam on it, and it's it's got to be neutral. It's got to be a you give the writing the the voice and and not the actor, and uh, and you've just got to as you say the the flow of the story is as Ted said, you've got to judge. I mean, some narrations I'll do which are, are sharp and and quick, but this just it wasn't there was there was no sense of that whatsoever. It was it was a flow. It was a constant. It was a it was an ululating, undulating sort of thing, and it, well, it was just a joy to do. So, you know, after your first read-through of it then, Nick, are you kind of basically in your mind, you're set, you're ready to roll, or does it take a bit more work than that? Sometimes one read-through will do, but I'd like to do, I'd like to do two. I did two or three, three, I think, with Ted's. Um, and then you've got to get into the right place, because I like to do it in one take, being at the short stories, although this is the longest I've done for you, Tony, by a long chalk. But uh, uh, yeah, then I just get under my um, tent of blankets and uh, and and try and get it done in one shot. Obviously, I'm I'm not going to read the whole story without mistakes and and without pronunciations wrong. Ted, DL. I just want to say uh, there was a there was a line in the, in the book um, when they named the uh, two year old boy, and you're damn right. This can't be pronounced by outsiders. That- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was wondering how you. I was really waiting for that that part of the story. I was like, "How the hell is he going to pronounce his name?" I, I just said it can't be pronounced. Yeah, uh, I did an awesome job, by the way. Thank you. I hope it was. All, I hope it was correct. I mean, because you know, uh, I wondered where to put the eyes the, for the uh, eyes, or is it an e or an i? And but it's like, oh, just get it and keep it constant, and they'll forgive me. But, uh, <laughs> Nick, just out of curiosity, then, how long did it take you to do it? I don't mean, I mean, just like, did you do it in one sitting, you know, and... Uh, this one, because I, I usually do most of it, because I live in a, I live on a sort of junction, and my house is, there's traffic passing it all the time, and uh, and just, you know, you, uh, there's no quiet place, and this bloody students moved in next door as well, so they, they start screaming, and um, so I usually do my stuff at night, but I thought, I'll try this during the day, and I'll try it in my living room, as opposed to... Uh, away and so there was a lot of uh, moments of I've got a dog and he was snoring because I was in the same room as him so I had to kick the dog out and the dog panicked because he was he was locked out of his normal room so he started headbutting the door and uh, and and traffic during the day was so it, there was a lot of stopping and then a lot of deep breaths and then uh, but it took 
I think. I mean, on average, it takes twice twice as long as the story should be. So, an hour twenty, I think this was. It probably took me two and a half, three hours to do. Oh, that's a, well, Nick. Honestly, it was just fantastic. You know what I mean? Worth every kind of second of heartache of that dog banging his head, your dog banging his head <laughs> against the, the door. <laughs> Ted, you know when you wrote it, did you have a a seal for it, or did you have anywhere specific yeah, you were going to send it? Or uh, yeah, I, I think uh, as soon as I realized it was going to be a fantasy story, I immediately thought of F and SF, and you know, I hoped I hoped fantasy and science fiction would buy it. You know, they're you know they're a pretty uh, prestigious market though, so you never you never really know. You can sort of hope they'll accept a story, but uh, yeah, when when Gordon Van Gelder accepted, I was I was pretty thrilled about that. So, but yeah, I had I had them in mind the whole time. Did they accept it without any kind of changes, or does, does Gordon does he sometimes you know ask for a little kind of change here and there? Um, uh, this time I don't think there were there were any changes. Maybe a couple a couple little tweaks, I think, um, but nothing nothing major. And are you are you quite happy with that? You know, when a kind of an editor says, "Listen, just you know, we just need to kind of enhance that little bit." Are you quite happy just to change to what well, they say? When they want changes made, uh, I'm usually happy because the the changes that they want made, I can I can usually see that they they need to be made. I'm, it usually my experience has been when an editor wants to change, I sort of have this uh, light bulb go up over my head, and I think, oh, of course, yeah, I should have done that all along, and it's and it's usually you know great advice. And then when they don't want changes, that's great too because uh, then it means I I got it pretty close to right. So, but in this case, I, I don't think there were any major changes. You know, you, you, you mentioned like you, you normally do research in that, and this one, there was no research, you just wrote. Was it an easy story to, to write? You know, like you say, you didn't have really a beginning, any structure. Was it an easy thing? You just kind of let your pen go or let the keyboards go? Uh, yeah, in terms of, uh, in terms, yeah, I got to shut down the analytical part of my brain and really just uh, dive into the language, which, which was a lot of fun. But I wouldn't say it was an, an easy story to write because I, I did – it seemed like it took for forever to write this story. You know, what started off as, you know, a quick short story between projects. And I mean, it took me a long time to write this thing. And I kept, I, and the ending kept sort of retreating from me in a weird way that it doesn't usually happen in short stories. And I was like half terrified the darn thing was going to turn into a novel by the time I was done with it because the ending just kept getting farther and farther away. So it definitely, definitely wasn't easy to write, but uh, just a different experience than my science fiction. With my science fiction, I usually have an ending I'm sort of aiming for, whereas this one, I really didn't know how it was going to end until I, I got there. So, um, but which was sort of terrifying too, because what if what if you you know spend all these months writing a short story and then you realize well the end there there is no ending it doesn't work you know that that'd be uh, that'd be terrible. So I'm glad that didn't happen in this case. You know, I'm, I'm interested as well, Ted, because you know, like I say, we've we've talked over email for a few few years there now, and at one point, you because you know the, the email I got from you once was just so low, and you were kind of ready to give up writing and everything. You know, it just wasn't working out. You know, you were kind of writing these, you know, to my to my eyes, was the some of the best science fiction stories out there, and yet just things weren't happening for you. You know what I mean? And now it seems, you know, your emails, you know, there's been a complete turnaround and things are looking pretty, well, looking amazing for you. Is that right? Yeah, I think I did sort of have my, my black moment when it, when it came to writing uh, a couple of years ago. I just, yeah, I couldn't seem to, well, my, my short stories were doing well, but in terms of like uh, novel writing, I just couldn't seem to make any traction with it. So that's what, you know, that's what I was sort of giving up on, I think, was, uh, you know, writing novels because I just, it, it's, 
it just sort of like saps all the life out of your soul when you when you <laughs> spend you spend a year or a year and a half writing a novel, then you send it off, and then it literally sits in a slush pile for years with you know with it's just sitting there. You're waiting to hear, and you know, it'll, like Christmas will come, and then the next Christmas will come, and you still haven't gotten a response for it, and you're like, oh, you know, how the heck does this work? And then you know, you get a form rejection, and it's like, oh my gosh. Whereas the short stories, you know, you send them off and, you know, usually get replies, you know, within a year, you know, or, or like in the case of FNSF, I mean, that's why I love fantasy and science fiction so much partially as, as a writer is just you get such fast replies. Uh, Lightspeed Magazine is another one. I mean, I just I just love John Joseph Adams, you know, it just he replies so quickly and you just have the sense that you're not, you know, writing these things and then sending them off into outer space and then you never you never hear back or by the time you do hear back, you're practically a different person because so much time has passed. I was going to say, you know, you just mentioned John Joseph Adams, you know, you had that uh, info layer. And when I'm looking, I'm on the internet science fiction database. And again, Ted, that's just like, you know, it was obviously John's read it and just thought, whoa, holy mother. And then, you know, it's been picked up again in the year's best science fiction. It's in Lightspeed's year one collection. You know, it, they seem to have like an extra life, your stories. So, you know, Good on, John. For, did you want to send to light speed, or was it, you know, for this one, the the infall? Did you fancy going like an online version? Yeah, I don't. I don't really have a preference. I don't think between uh, print magazine and uh, and you know the online magazines. Really, it's just it's more about the the respect I have for the editors. And so, you know, I really really respect uh, uh, John Joseph Adams. I think he's an, an excellent editor, and the magazine he puts together is is awesome. Also, Gordon Van Gelder. Just an awesome editor, you know. He's, he's, that's as prestigious as as an editor gets, I think. Uh, you know, he just has this great track record. And so for me, it's it's more about and uh, Sheila Williams at at Asimov's another uh, really you know the person who gave me my start in writing, you know, published my first short story. So it's really about the editors more than the venue, I think. Like if if John Joseph Adams started another magazine somewhere else, I'd I'd send that one too. It wouldn't matter to me if it was print or, or online. No, I cannot remember for the life of us, Ted, but I've seen a picture where there's you and Sheila Williams at some space. Um, what was that? It was something to do like a space launch or some. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, the Nebula Awards. Uh, I believe it was 2010, uh, the 2010 Nebula Awards. Yeah, well, it was down <clears throat> It was down in Florida and it coincided with a uh, shuttle launch. I think it was the second to last shuttle launch and uh, the Nebula Awards were held nearby and so a bunch of us who were nominated for nebulas uh ended up going to watch the shuttle launch and, uh, and sheila was there so i got to hang out with sheila for the day and watch uh the space shuttle uh take off so it's pretty much uh one of the highlights of my life i think that day and like see we now you know like there's been a turnaround you've got the is that right you've got the games out is that novel out there now is it yeah, yeah, it's out now. It's in, it's in bookstores now. So was this, was this a novel that you kind of sent off and it, it has been just sitting there for years and then all of a sudden you, you get a letter? Or did this one go out and it got kind of picked up straight away and you've got ones that have kind of been tucked away in the bottom drawer that haven't seen any acceptance? <laughs> well, I actually, I do have a, a trunk novel, like, like almost every no- novelist. <laughs> but yeah, I don't want to, I think that one's going to stay in the trunk because I feel like I've, built up just a, at least a little bit of goodwill amongst readers. So I don't want to destroy it all with like a really horrible book. So yeah, my trunk novel is staying in the trunk, but the the games is, is the book I wrote after my trunk novel. But that one was the one I was, 
you know, that one was sent around and that one did spend, you know, birthdays inside of uh, slush piles. Um, so it definitely took a while to, to finally, you know, get accepted and, and get printed. So I'm extremely happy that it was finally published because uh, I because I do. And that was the thing. It was sort of frustrating because I would write my short stories and they would get published and they would they would do well. And my novel was almost like an extension of that exact kind of story. And yet I couldn't, didn't seem to be able to get any traction with it. But, you know, maybe just novels just take longer, you know, I, which makes sense, I guess. You know, it's a bigger investment on the part of the, the publisher. So maybe you got to uh, earn your stripes a little bit before, you know, you could break in with something big like that. At least, you know, that's, that's, that's speculation, I guess. But Nick, we're talking about novels here there. What, what would be your kind of feeling for, for doing, like, say, a novel, you know, like a, a whole narration of a novel? Because there's loads out there that are kind of, you know, in the kind of, you could just probably pick one that's been, you know, in the, the olden times, so to speak. Or do you think a novel may be one step too far for you? Or is that just, you know, part of the job and you would take that on no problem? Uh, no, I would absolutely adore to do a, a, a full audio book, a, a novel length thing, especially with the uh, pound per finished hour that they... Uh, <laughs> yes they're a little bit more than what what we what we pay (laughs) uh, yeah no i would uh the the, the thing is for me it's my my only restriction is that that would be a well i'd like it to be a full-time job i'm I'm, you you me joining starship sofa has introduced me to the possibility that i can actually make this professionally as well as acting and um but i just need to to spend ten thousand pounds on a bloody uh sound booth to so to stop the deranged students screaming through but uh, no that's my aim say i want to buy a decent mic and get some nice software and i want to start doing this properly because it's it's weird how you know just for, for narrations and that you know there is kind of quite a lot of very different things out there to do narrations you know just i had a, um when we did the narrations workshop the first one, you know, one of the kind of guests on there, that guest speakers that I had on there, he was making a fortune from narrating for, for like, say, the likes of Tesco's insurance or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, the yeah. letters they send out, you know, just like a... And it's all cut and paste, you know, like, Dear Mrs. Smith, you know, thank you for your inquiry over, you know what I mean? It's like... Mm. Oh, and he's just making a small fortune. Do you know what I mean? So it's quite weird how, yes, this is, you know, this, to read kind of science fiction would be fantastic, but there must be so much out there as well. Uh, there is. I mean, I was, for an example, I was working um, with a, an actor doing a, it was just a corporate thing for British Nuclear Power, as it goes. Uh, uh, we finished the day about five o'clock and he turned his phone back on and he had about 40 messages and, and nearly all of the messages were for jobs, uh, which he could, so he could get back to his, his phone booth, his, his voice booth. And some of them he'll do, there'll be 10 second things and he'll get, 20, 30 quid for it, but he gets 30 of these a day. And it's, it's remarkable, yeah. It's, and so he's, why, he's, why can't he put a good word in for you? <laughs> because then I'll be taking his bloody work, <laughs> won't I? Yeah. And I mean, getting nothing from a side yet, Nick. You're a kind of TV actor. You've been on British UK. Tell us what you've been on, because I actually missed a couple of them, but you've, is it Hollyoaks you've been on? Not that I'll kind of watch Hollyoaks, mind you. <laughs> Yeah, it was the last thing I did was Hollyoaks. I've been on all the crappy British soaps quite a lot, quite regularly, but only, you know, only two or three episodes at a time. Nothing. Do you always get killed there. off? <laughs> uh, no, I'm generally there to kill people off or to to collect them, to collect the bodies or whatever. But um, yeah, but you t- you tell people, oh yeah, I've been on all the soaps, and their eyes light up, and um, 
but it, it's it's just you know it's the uh, paying for the paying for your breakfast basically sort of money. And uh, but no, done, I've done more than everybody's struggling in the acting world at the moment as well because of this great big world recession. Even actors who usually get lots and lots of jobs are starting to take the jobs that I would get because I'm just you know I'm a small a small time actor even though I've done a lot of telly. But uh, it, it's the, the the ladders, the rungs on the ladder are, are sort of breaking up, and we're fall, everybody's falling down a few. Is so. was acting always for you then, Nick? Then is that you know, as soon as you left school, that was it. You wanted to be an actor. When I was <laughs> at school, when I was, I did uh, my first role was when I was a, um, a four-year-old. I was a washerwoman <laughs> in the school's uh, Christmas show, and I did a, I put a tutu on and did a ballet dance, and uh, and that never looked back made. since then. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never look back. <laughs> it's a typecast ever since then, huh? That's far bad. Oh well, listen, hey Nick, if we can get some kind of, you know, work for you there, that would be fantastic. You know, like see, there is opportunities out there, but it's just like getting your foot in the door. You know, like Audible dot com right. and all them. You know what I mean? They must pay yeah. a, a good, nice bit. I don't know how they operate. I don't know if they, you know, you've got to go and narrate in their studios, or do they just? You just send their pro, you know, projects over there. But listen, man, you've got a stunning voice. And do you know what I mean? It, I tell you what's good as well. You can just change it. And I've just sent over, if everyone's interested, I would just send over Nick a story called It Puss in DC by Pamela Sargent. Now, I'm look, so looking forward to that because that hopefully Dick's going to just ham that up. There's all sorts of different voices in there. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see what you, you kind of match in with that one, Nick. Well, I, I must, I must thank you, Tony, because you're sending me longer and longer stories. So I'm, I'm really getting used to this. This is only eleven thousand words, fella. Oh, Thanks. Lord. it's all yeah. part of the. Hey, it's a learning curve. I'm just getting you there, Ted, Ted, <laughs> Nick, just so you can, you know, when the novels start coming in, the work starts coming in, say, I cut me teeth there in the sofa. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ted, have you got any more? Because I know, like you say, the games came out. I'm looking on here, the games 2012 novel. Have you got another one coming, or is anything any more stories coming? Or I, I sure do. I have another novel coming out uh, uh, in April. It's called The Prophet of Bones. I think it's going to be called The Bone Prophet, though, when it's released in the UK. Um, so they're giving it, uh, you know, different titles based on the country it's coming out in. But I'm super excited about that one. Um, can't wait till it's out. And then I have a short story coming out from uh, Asimov's. Um, it's called Haplotype 1402. Uh, I'm not sure when that one's going to be released. Uh, probably sometime in the next uh, six months or so, uh, from Sheila Williams. Um, and other than that, uh, you know, I'm I'm working on my third novel right now. I'm about uh, about a third of the way into it, so I'm hoping to uh, finish that up by next summer, and hopefully that'll come out uh, uh, the following year. So yeah, I'm always I'm constantly busy, just writing, writing, writing. So Ted, are you a full time writer then, or have you got a day job? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a full-time writer, so uh, I'm a writer at Valve Software, a video game company. Um, so uh, right, right, uh, right now I'm working on Dota 2, this awesome fantasy game. Uh, it's still in beta, but it should be released uh, sometime next year. So I'm looking forward to that. So, I, yeah, I spend my, spend my days writing. Ted, you're, so you work for Valve, so obviously you'll be able to tell us what's happening with Half-Life then, are you? <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Uh, I, wish, I wish I could tell you, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, sworn to secrecy. I thought you might be. So, well, the, the, see, there, there's a, a link as well. And so, Ted, what about, say, voice acting from the game side of things? Surely that industry needs 
Young, young, I'll say young talent. He's, Dick's probably. Of course, you will. Yeah, he's probably a lot older than me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'll be honest. You know, I we're working where I do. I mean, I see some of the best voice actors in the world. I'm just constantly amazed by the quality of these people that they bring in for to you know to voice the games. I mean, just just amazing people. And Nick, I think absolutely just hangs right with these guys. I mean, uh, there's, I mean. Honestly, I mean, I, I was just blown away by Nick. I, I think uh, I think he's going to be on to big things in the future. Um, I'm blushing now. <laughs> have, a, have a swig of whiskey. Well, it's funny, mind oh. you, because Nick sent uh, Nick sent me an email, you know, and he was like half cut. He said when he actually wrote it, you know what I mean. And he sent this email over saying I wouldn't mind having a little narration go, a little you know, a little dabble there. And I can't remember which story you, you did first, Nick, but straight uh, away I just thought, oh man. It was the Adam Roberts, yeah, and I was more than half cut when I emailed you. Yes, because uh-huh. yeah. normally I get, like, see, I get a few emails, and normally I just kind of, oh, that's a, a bit of a dodgy one there. I just kind of delete that one there. But the, you did a link to, I think, like your, your, your kind of TV acting bio, yeah. you know, and I thought, I think this guy's for real. Do you know what I mean? Like you say, the, that Adam <laughs> Roberts story, and, yeah. you know, you did the Peter Watts one, which was just, we've never had as many downloads, like, in a week. Do you know what I mean? I think... It was over 20,000 in the first week for that Peter Watts story, so... Oh, know. that fella deserves it. I mean, Peter Watts is one of my top, top writers, and I wish he'd sort out... Get, well, he's apparently... His book's going to be out in about two years. He's new. He's sidequel to um, Blindsight, apparently, and uh, he's just been relating on, on his webpage about how it's been with an editor for 18 months, and the editor's just disappeared off the face of the earth. So he's got to give it to another editor now, so it's another... Another two a year or two, apparently, and uh, and I'll be bloody narrating that. I tell you, <laughs> it's weird, you know. You're right, Ted. When, like, you see, you write a novel and you've spent like your heart and soul on this novel, and then it just gets kind of basically washed away, you know, in in the drift. And however, you know, it it, it sounds like a small miracle that it ever gets picked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's the exact word I would use. Small miracle. That's what it felt like. So this this one that's coming out is this by the same publisher that took your first one on? No, the the first one was published by Del Rey, and then now this next one is going to be published by Henry Holt. So it's a, it's a different publisher, but uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it though. Now, what about I tell you because it, it it always seems when it comes out in you know from you kind of people I know you know in kind of respect over in America, it never seems to come in UK Amazon Kindle for some strange reason. I know there's all kind of copyright issues and different publishers over here and that is it coming over on kindle uh, you know I, i'm almost positive it is yeah this one it's the the next one's going to be published uh, they had a list of countries it was going to be in. I, I i don't have it in front of me right now but um and i know it's going to be published in turkey it's going to be published in italy it's going to be published in japan so it's going to be it's going to be all over so i assume it'll it'll be in the uk kindle i'd be shocked if it wasn't so Gentlemen, what can I say? Honestly, a big thank you to both, you know, Ted and Nick for coming on, you know, and like I say, just making this show what it is today, you know what I mean? It kind of, it's, it's down to you guys that are kind of doing this, you know what I mean? I just have knee hope, you know, no, no talent whatsoever. It's all down to you what are kind of doing this. So again, Ted, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Cheers. Oh, thanks for, thanks for having me, Tony. I appreciate it. It was great meeting you, Nick, uh, via, <laughs> via Skype. Yep, this is my. I'm a Skype virgin. This is my first time, Ted. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Be, before you, you go, you can I ask? Oh, uh, you, you did awesome for uh, 
for your first time then? Uh, yeah, I've got. Well, I'm a bit scared, but can I ask you, Ted, in, in a little question? Um, sure. Tony's saying how oh, he doesn't do any work and uh, and he just pushes the buttons. As a, as an American, how on earth do you understand what he says? <laughs> you know, it, people with uh, uh, the, an accent is almost like a superpower. I don't know if you know this, but but you guys just basically sound cool as hell to me. Like, <laughs> really, you could be uh, you could be just saying like your grocery list, and I'd be thinking in my head, you know, what a badass this guy is. I mean, it really is. You you, you need to take more advantage of that, honestly. Because <laughs> you know, the, the average American to me just it just doesn't sound as cool as you guys. You know, it's funny when you're talking like that, though, Nick. And Ted, it's the, and it's only happened once a couple of weeks ago. It was Spider Robinson said to me, he says, "Is your accent, Tony? Is, are you? Is that a, what we call a jory from the northeast of England?" And Spider Robinson nailed it on the head because every time, every time I get, "Are you Scottish, Tony? Are you Scottish?" <laughs> we're probably about, a, I guess, a hundred miles from the border. You know, we built a bloody wall to keep them out. You know what I mean? It's like. But Spider just got it straight away, and I was like, that's the first time that's ever happened. Wow, that is impressive. Well, gentlemen, again, Nick, Ted, like I say, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks Absolute for having pleasure. me. There you go. I hope you enjoyed the story and the narration by Nick and the interview as well. I had a blast just talking to them two guys, man. Just for excellent it's just be you know what i mean in this world it just i wish it was a little bit smaller so we could just get around a table and just have a, like a drink and a chatter that would be fantastic so next up is a little promo by jeff lane jeff's done like you say a number of narrations for starship sober i just love jeff's work as well please have a listen to this i put a link on the jeff's site do do pop over there and say hello to jeff vampires werewolves mermaids all the creatures of legend what if they weren't a legend and what if they were all the same creature from jeff lane the author of this paper world and one way comes a new heart-pounding adventure crush depth narrated by the author and brought to life as a full cast audio drama crush depth is available as a free podcast at jefflaneaudiobooks.com podiobooks.com and itunes Catch the serialized podcast that will have people buzzing and leave you trying to claw your way out of Crush Depth. JeffLaneAudiobooks.com There you go. That is a show. I don't know what, I can't remember what the bloody show is. 267. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, it's a fun packed show. I just. Thank you to everybody. Don't forget the Spider Robinson, you know what I mean? That's how now we're kind of trying to make some little bit of wonga to keep Starship Sova going. If you do want to come along to the Spider Robinson gig, do think about donating to Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? Bringing quality stuff like that, man. It's, it's hard work to get, <laughs> to get it all pulled together. Do think about, you know, a monthly subscription to Starship Sova or just a one-off donation, especially over this festive period dig deep into your pockets and support the store the sofa that would be fantastic until next week just like to see you good day from me will our heroes survive this 
terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Distortion Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.